My name's Travis Bennett. Blessed, excited to be able to spend the morning with y'all worshiping. Very happy for this opportunity. Take my heart and let it be thy royal throne. Wow. What a line. What a good word, huh? Thank y'all so much for this uh, amazing opportunity. So let's just open up in a word of prayer. Father, we come before you so grateful and thankful for grace, thankful for mercy, thankful for your gospel. This is why we're here. We're here centered around this message of salvation and truth that you would save sinners. We love you because you first loved us. And we're grateful, Lord, to have an opportunity to gather so that we can hear you, so that we can listen to your words. Thank you for giving us your words. Thank you for this body. Thank you for your church. Help me even now for your glory alone. Amen. We're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. So if you have your Bible, please turn there and listen as I read aloud. Now, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. The average sized portrait is 21 inches by 25 inches. This size portrait requires approximately 20,000 paintbrush strokes to be completed. The Sistine Chapel ceiling, painted by Michelangelo in fresco between 1508 and 1512, is widely known as a cornerstone piece in the, in the Renaissance era. And the Sistine Chapel is about 133 feet by 46 feet in dimensions, or... 1,596 inches by 552 inches. And a painting that size would be made up of somewhere around a million brush strokes. One million. And as you can imagine, each brush stroke is crucial to the development of the final product as a whole. In fact, just a small handful of, of careless strokes can, can mar the painting. And it can generate an art piece that nobody would ever want to look upon. Even one section of the entire painting, if handled inappropriately, could, could, could leave the viewer disturbed, distracted even. The painting of a portrait, therefore, could be compared to the Christian life. Yeah? And each 
stroke of the brush is a, is, is a single day in the Christian's life. And the end result is the Christian's testimony. The, the average death of an American is 77 years old. Or 28,207 days. That means by the time you turn 30, you're already 39% done with your life if you live to the average age of 77. What am I driving at? Every day of your life matters. And a Christian can create an honoring testimony day by day simply by pursuing Christ-likeness. But a Christian can also create a damaged testimony by living a life contrary to what God has prescribed to us. Each day of our life is like a brush stroke on a canvas. And we're creating our testimony to the church and to our family and to the outside world itself every single day, one stroke at a time. And by the end of our lives, our legacy portrait will be completed. It will be done. Therefore, we should strive to cultivate a godly, faithful testimony. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, Paul provides four marks of a faithful testimony. Four marks of a faithful testimony legacy portrait. Number one, abundant love. Abundant love. Let's reread verses 9 and 10 together. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another, for that indeed is what you're doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. Paul begins this section with a transition word, now. This transition reveals that we have a clean break from the previous section that Paul was going over in reference to sexual immorality in verses 3 through 8 in 1 Thess chapter 4. Uh, Paul was introducing a new topic, specifically brotherly love and its impact on the church and the outside world. The term brotherly love comes from two Greek words, the, the love of... Uh, a brother or a sister, and uh, literally uh, Philadelphia is where we get the, the term, the brotherly love. The word is most commonly referring to a physical blood-sibling relationship. However, in the New Testament, it's often used as brothers and sisters in the church itself, the spiritual church family. So this term brotherly love was referring to the sacrificial care and the concern that the Thessalonian believers were expressing to each other through selfless actions, deeds, and heart attitudes. And what's incredible, incredible here is, is Paul's comment on brotherly love is, is its brevity. Notice that he doesn't go into intense detail on the topic. In fact, Paul literally only says that the Thessalonians have no need for anybody to write to them concerning brotherly love. Why? because they were exhibiting it so well, because they had been taught by God to do so, and that 
that they were indeed practicing brotherly and, and sisterly, if you will, love all throughout their area so faithfully. Now, this turn taught by God, is, 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 it's, it's interesting. It's actually the only time in the entire New Testament that this word is used. It literally means to be instructed by God, to be taught by God. And it can have two possible meanings. Number one, uh, it could mean taught by God in the, in the same sense that the word of God throughout the New Testament and Old Testament, that the scriptures have actually taught the Thessalonian church how to love one another. So we see this in like Psalm 119, verses 97 through 102. Listen as I read aloud. Uh, Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Or it could be referring to the eternal, internal testimony of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the Thessalonians. Since the Thessalonians had been made into new creatures and since the Holy Spirit is now dwelling within them, they were being taught by God intrinsically by the Spirit, themsel- by, by the Spirit himself to love one another. We see this in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, where Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So, have y'all been taught by the word of God yourselves in your own life? Yes. Have you been taught by the Holy Spirit? Has the eyes of your hearts been enlightened so that you can understand spiritual truths? Yes. So which one does it mean? Both. <laughs> it means both and it can mean both. I don't think it's helpful to pit these two ideas against each other. I see both as normal truths that are being displayed in the life of Christians every single day. So what am I driving at? Once a Christian is saved, they are made new and they're matured through the Holy Spirit's sanctification process by his word, right? Being taught by God. And that internal resident teacher, the Holy Spirit, also does his work through the reading and the studying of his inspired word, which is incredible. So regardless of which road you travel, it's important to understand that the Thessalonians have been instructed by God, literally taught by God, how to love one another. And they were doing it well. And as we move into verse 10, Paul makes this type of declarative assertion here that the Thessalonians have been practicing love to every brother and sister in Christ throughout the whole region of Macedonia. And right at the tail end of verse 10, there's another conjunction here, the word but. 
And that begins to transition us to the summary of the entire passage. The Thessalonians were making it the consistent practice of their lives to showcase love toward all the brothers in their surrounding region. But the intent of Paul's statement quickly followed. The word for urge here, if you look there in verse 10, uh, comes with the idea of an exhortation, a strong emotional appeal. Paul follows up this encouragement from verses 9 and 10, that you guys are doing great in love, with a four-part exhortation. He follows the encouragement with a four-part exhortation. And the four-part exhortation is the basis for this sermon. And in the first encouragement, Paul implores the Thessalonians to abundantly love one another. Abundantly love. The word here for abundantly is to do it more and more. It means to abound. Another, other English translations in some of your all's Bibles might say excel more or increase more. But the idea is the same in every sense. Enlarge your love for one another. Magnify your love for each other. Take a giant overflowing jar of love and pour it over each other. That's what he's trying to say. You're doing it? Do it again and do it more and do it more. Let there be an overflowing cup of love expressed for all of you, for each other. And as Christians, we're called to lavishly abound in love continuously. But, but don't, get me, don't, don't get me wrong here and don't mistake in what I'm saying. This, this is not the emotionally driven abstract, subjective, cultural love that dominates in our society today, right? No, Paul was referring to the objective, the, the concrete and the God-defined concept of love that was perfectly exhibited by Christ himself. Love as a verb, love as an action, not quite as simple as an emotion. Do you see? And the beauty of Paul's statement here is its simplicity. Even if you're currently loving one another to a large degree, do it more. And then do it again. And then wake up tomorrow and do it again. Keep going. Keep loving more and more and more and more and more. That's what he's getting at here. It's simple. But simple's not always easy, right? When your family and when your friends gaze upon your legacy portrait, which is your life up to this point, what do they see? Do they see a person who's deeply rooted in love and care for them, for the local body, for the church? Do they see a sacrificial servant who puts other people's interests above their own? Or do they see a self-absorbed hypocrite who can't stop looking at themselves in the mirror long enough to serve somebody else? Do they see a hypercritical, mean-spirited, judgmental Pharisee who has a hard time pouring out love on other people because they're afraid that they... they might appear superior to you. 
you see, if your life is a portrait, then abundant love is the backdrop of the entire painting. And if love's the backdrop, then peace would be the vibrant colors selected for the painting. The second mark of our faithful testimony is ambitious peace. The first mark of a faithful testimony, abundant love, number two, ambitious peace. Look back at the first part of verse 11 for me here. Verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly, and to aspire to live quietly. The next three exhortations come in machine gun fashion here. They come one after another after another. And in this second exhortation, Paul implores the Thessalonians to make it their life's directive to lead a quiet and peaceful life, avoiding any kind of loud-mouthed troublemaking. Wow, that's an interesting way of phrasing it. The phrase to aspire to live quietly derives from two words in the original. The first means to have it as one's ambition. And the second is to aspire with a focus on rendering a service. So while focusing, it's aspiring to render a specific service. So the term means to have a strong desire for achieving a task. And within this specific context, that task would be our second word, to live quietly. What's the goal? Live quietly. No, that doesn't mean that if you're naturally an introverted person that you're safe and you're good and you're just automatically more holy than the rest of us extroverts, right? Uh, Rather, the term refers to refraining from disturbing activity, to live peaceably and orderly with one another. More specifically, the Christian who lives a quiet life is living an unobtrusive life of tranquility. Their life demands peace. It's a type of life that demands peace. A Christian who lives peaceably is a Christian who's not stirring up problems within their society or generating conflict within their relationships. Uh, To put it positively, a Christian who lives quietly is a Christian who lives with an aura of peace around them while in the midst of difficulty. My wife and I regularly practice something that I've coined marriage maintenance. It's like if you ever get your car, the oil changed. (laughs) Marriage maintenance is when you and your spouse get together and you guys enter into a safe bubble. It's like a safe zone. No clown shoes are allowed. So you can't step on anybody's clown shoes. It's a safe zone where things can be said that need to be said in love, okay? So if she wants to request that I stop tracking dirt in after I come in from a run with my shoes for the hundredth time because I forget on the hundredth and first, right? I just keep forgetting. I don't know why. I do know why because I'm kind of slow. But it's a safe environment for us to talk to each other about anything, So, if you were to take this with your spouse, or if you don't have a spouse, if you were to take this with your friend, if you were to take this with your brother, your sister, your mentor, your discipler, if you were to ask somebody in your life that knew you to this deep level, how would they think of your life in reference to living quietly? 
they were to ask you that. Would they say that your life is habitually marked by peacefulness? Would they say that you've grown substantially over the years? You know, maybe you started over here, but you're, but you're over there now, and that's great. That's exciting. That's, that, 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 that's a blessing. The Lord's growing us. Praise the Lord for that. Or would they say, oh, you're, you're pretty divisive. You're actually pretty divisive. Would they say that you, you like strife? That you enjoy drama? That you search it out to partake in it? I don't know. But you should. And you should ask. You should enroll in a, in a maintenance plan and begin asking these types of questions to the people who know you best. Search for it honestly and be honest with yourselves. What's really important is how you respond, right? Because what if somebody gives you an answer that you weren't anticipating, you weren't expecting, and honestly you weren't wanting? And are you going to say, in pride, defensively, well, no, 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 I'm not, I'm not a dramatic person. No, I'm not. I thought you knew me, but you must really not know me because you wouldn't have said that. <laughs> well, no, maybe, maybe, maybe you are. And this is something that you need to think about. Let us strive ambitiously towards living peaceably with one another. Peacefulness. They're the very colors which we're going to be known by in our legacy portrait. When people look at our portrait, they're going to see our quiet, peaceful life because it will be the most visible when the wrong color is used. Have you ever looked at a portrait and you're like, that color's off. I'm looking at the sky. It's supposed to be blue, but by golly, it's black. It's just a dark, dark contrast of a photo. I wasn't expecting that. If abundant love is the backdrop of your portrait, and if ambitious peace are the colors, then the, the very instrument that you use or choose not to use is the third mark of the faithful testimony. Our third mark is a faithful, of, a te, of a faithful testimony is wise restraint. Wise restraint. First, abundant love, ambitious peace. Three, wise restraint. Look back at the middle of verse 11. And to mind your own affairs. In Paul's third exhortation, Paul implores the Thessalonians to mind their own business so as not to be a gossiping busybody. Various translations translate this term to attend to your own business, to mind your own business. The term means to engage in an activity or behave in a certain way. The word can be taken in a general or neutral way in various passages. The object of the, of the, of the term itself is yourself. So it'd be best to be understood here to keep to yourself or to mind your own business. Now, I must be quick to state what this does not mean. It does not mean that Christians are to stay completely out of the lives of other Christians. It's the flesh which tells you that it's better not to approach that brother lovingly about his sin. 
And it's the flesh that tells you that it's better not to ask your friend how they're doing in that particular relationship. Or you know that your friend has a, is estranged from their son or daughter due to their sin. And I just don't want to talk about that right now because that might take a few hours. That's the flesh. It's pride when you refuse to allow other believers into the intimate details of your own life. So yeah, the Christian must be a reserved person in the sense that they're calm, they're controlled, they're restrained, and they're slow to interject into matters which do not pertain to them. However, this doesn't give you a license to be a hermit crab. You can't be a hermit crab that refuses to participate in the lives of fellow Christians. There's a wise middle ground that Christians must traverse. And it's at this point that it would be helpful to look forward to Paul's relationship with the Thessalonian church, this very same Thessalonian church. Go, go move to the right a little bit in your Bible. Second Thessalonians, chapter 3. We're only going to read one verse now, but we're going to read a paragraph later. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11. Verse 11. Now remember, this is Paul talking to the same young Thessalonian church, but in a separate love letter. Now, Paul's saying what? For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. We're going to talk more about this in a minute, about walking in idleness specifically. But for now, let's look at busybodies. Uh, the term busybodies in the original meant to be intrusively busy, to be a meddler, to meddle, is to intrusively pry and to interfere with the affairs of others. It's apparent from Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians that the young Thessalonian church had been struggling with two things. Laziness and meddling. Laziness and meddling for a young church. There is not much more damaging behavior than the person who constantly injects themselves into the lives of unwilling participants for some sort of self-serving purpose. To create a God-honoring legacy portrait, you must not only focus on the brush strokes that you make every single day, but also what, on the strokes that you don't make. Focus on the things that you do, but just as important as the things that you don't do that speak the loudest. Now, you may be asking yourself, how do I tell the difference between injecting myself into somebody's life for a self-serving purpose and injecting myself into somebody's life for a good godly purpose? I like to inject myself into somebody's life sometimes just to check on them because this person might be a hermit crab, and they don't want anybody to you know, talk to them, but I need to talk to them. But I don't want to do it because I want to be self-serving. I want to do it because I want to help. There might be a balance in your heart that is throwing you off a little bit. Just evaluate your heart motive. Keep it very simple. Evaluate your heart motive behind why you're doing what you're doing. Ask yourself, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I asking that person... Uh, the details of their lives. Is it because I really care? Is it because I want to help? 
Is it because I want to see them glorify the Lord Jesus Christ more and more and more? Great, praise the Lord, do it. Then do it again tomorrow. <laughs> Abundantly do it. But what if you're intrusively meddling and you just desperately want to inject yourselves into everybody's life because of some sort of twisted sense of purpose? Maybe you're being the church gossip that has a hard time keeping to yourself because you want to seem important because you want a, you want a personal folder on, of everybody's life on your, on your desk. Say, well, I know about this person's life, this person's life, this person's life. You just collect data. Not to help, just to know. Or are you asking because you care? The difference matters, do you see? The mode can be the same. The questions that you ask can be the same. But your heart motive's radically different. And you have to evaluate why you're doing what you're doing. You have to be able to discern the difference. How many haphazard and careless strokes that you shouldn't have made will it take to mar the entire portrait? Paul calls us to a life of wise restraint where we bear each other's burdens and tactically involve ourselves in each other's lives. And while we do so, we have to restrain ourselves from the foolish brush strokes that could distort our painting. And while we continue the legacy portrait of our testimony, we can't forget the engine. We can't forget every, the, the, the very center that keeps everything going. It's a hard work ethic. It's a hard work ethic. That's our final mark. The first mark, abundant love. The second mark, ambitious peace. The third mark, wise restraint. The fourth mark of a faithful testimony, a hard work ethic. A hard work ethic. Look at the last portion of verse 11. And to work with your hands as we instructed you. The term to work here means to engage in activities that involve work and effort. Once the following term, with your hands, gets added, we clearly see that Paul is referring to manual labor. To best understand this verse, context must be given to the Thessalonian church. The inception of the Thessalonica church is briefly talked about in Acts 17, verses 1 through 9. Acts 17, 1 through 9, don't turn there. But you can write that down if you're like, ooh, I'm interested in learning about the birth of the Thessalonica church later. You can read that later. Once Paul and Silas arrived in Thessalonica, they shared the gospel with the Jewish people in their synagogues for three weeks, three Sabbath days. And there were some Jews that got converted, but the majority of the church that got converted were Gentiles. And after a short, undefined period of pastoring, Paul and the company were forced from the city due to the violent and manipulative nature of the jealous Jewish people, leaders. Thus, Paul had to leave the young Thessalonican church, very young church, maybe even only a year or two old at the time of the letter. Now, this young church consisted predominantly of Gentile people, very unchurched people, uh, very worldly people, very philosophical people. They loved education. They hated work. They hated 
manual labor, working with their hands. In fact, Gentile people thought that manual labor was reserved for the lowliest of people in the society, slaves. They thought that they were above such things. So if you're still in 2 Thessalonians, if not, go back there. Uh, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 12, we'll better understand what's going on in the future of the Thessalonica church. Once again, remember, we're in 1 Thessalonians, but in 2 Thessalonians, just a little bit later, we're starting to gain a context and clarity as to some of the struggles that the church, this young church, was encountering. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 12. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now, such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So there was an issue beginning to boil in the church and it revealed their immature work ethic. Although their misunderstanding of the return of Christ was also in play here, they thought Christ was returning tomorrow, and he could have returned tomorrow, but they literally said, hey, he's going to be returning maybe in the next two hours, so let's just quit our jobs. Let's just not work. So that was in play, but that also was an immature understanding of work because we were, we're supposed to work as unto the Lord until Christ does come back, right? But their predominant impetus here was their disdain for manual labor. Uh, what's the remedy? What's the remedy to the Thessalonians' idleness problem? What did Paul give them here? Work hard. Interesting. He said, okay, you guys are struggling with idleness, with laziness. Work hard. Don't overcomplicate this is what he's trying to get at here. This is a simple exhortation. What's the remedy for laziness? To work hard. Fascinating that the remedy of the problem is typically the same thing that you're struggling with, right? Work hard. How do I fight my struggle of entitlement when I feel that I'm above a certain job? My boss told me to do this particular job, and I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I'm above that type of work. Do it. And work hard while doing it. Well, how do I cultivate discipline in my life while in my pursuit of holiness? Work hard. Work hard. How do I practically fight against lazy tendencies? What about the young mom 
who, who, who's also a new, uh, a young wife who's a new mom, who has a now a million things on her plate, who's struggling with balancing all of them, doesn't know what to do and how exactly to keep it all together. Be faithful, try your best, work hard. What about the young dad, young husband, who now has a lot more responsibilities and a lot more mouths to feed, working, trying to balance everything and still trying to provide and take care of and shepherd his family at home? No more time to do your own hobbies anymore like you did when you were a boy. What should you do then? Give up childish things, work hard. Try to honor the Lord, be faithful, try your best. Work hard where you're at. Work hard. That's what he says. It's pretty simple. Once again, simple's not easy though, amen? Simple's not easy. I'm just saying it's simple. Have you, have you ever truly evaluated, dissected, interrogated your work ethic in comparison to what the, the Bible demands of you? Um, do you have any lingering laziness, sin tendencies that you're coddling? Confess it. Confess it, repent of it, run away from it, because it's your hard work ethic that's going to be driving you to keep painting day by day, one brushstroke at a time. Sometimes life gets hard. Struggles, sadnesses, sicknesses, real life trials hit you and you don't want to paint another brushstroke. Right? We get tired but we can't stop. You have to press on. You have to continue on. Your legacy portrait's on the line. Look back down, verse 11. And, um, I'm sorry, First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11. We're back to First Thessalonians chapter 4. Paul started off this section with encouragement to the Thessalonians about their great love for one another. Then Paul moved to four exhortations. That's what we've been talking about. Afterwards, Paul provided a reminder that his statements were actually based off of an old edict that he already commanded them to follow. This is old news. And Paul wanted them to express the purpose now of this entire purpose, of this entire section. Here's the purpose. Verse 12. So that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on nobody. We've been discussing the four different marks of a faithful testimony. Each of them are significant standing alone, but look at the masterful overlap when they all culminate in one giant so that statement. It, 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 it's incredibly helpful when the text tells us the purpose of the, of the paragraph. What's the purpose of what we're reading? Well, God gave us the purpose in the so that statement here. Paul concludes the section by saying that you should live your life in this particular way so that you might walk decently towards outsiders. 
That's it. This is good. To, to, to walk is describing a habitual lifestyle. It's denoting a particular way of life and conduct. To walk decently is to walk properly. The term itself uh, means to be proper in behavior, to act becomingly. So the phrase together means to consistently live your life that is becoming of a Christian. Live your life in a way that's becoming of a Christian. And the term outsiders is referring to a non-inclusive group of a certain type of people. Literally, those on the outside. Therefore, what's being said is that you should live a loving, quiet, reserved, hard-working life so that you can be a benefit and light to the outside world. Wow, you know this. You know and you understand this. You've heard this before. Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but, but on a stand and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. You know that. The way that we live our lives every day begins to create a testimony that will last in the minds of humans for generations. The, the, this, this testimony that we create will be seen every single day by your family, by your church, by your community, and by God. By the Lord of glory himself, it will be seen. It's incredibly intimidating thought. The light that we live is being watched by those inside and outside the church. And as representatives of Christ, we are being rightly scrutinized and observed by all. My previous career was in law enforcement before seminary. And every time that you wear that uniform, you get into that car, you know, you're in the color of the law, people look at you differently. And they should. You're a representative of something. Yes? You have a responsibility and a weight. And everything that you do, every word that you say is scrutinized and watched and observed. It should be. It should be. How much weightier is the badge of Christ? Is it not? Bigger? Loftier? We should be watched. We should be seen. The outside world should be looking at us saying, okay, well, the world is just completely going all about and around in chaos right now. What's the church doing? Should. How will we be doing? What will we be doing? It's been wrongly stated that you should share the gospel and when necessary, use words. It's not correct. This is inherently false because sharing the gospel requires you to verbally speak the message. You must use words to share the gospel 
It's good to use words to share the gospel. However, the way you live your life does matter. And how you live does have a massive impact on the lives of unbelievers. Your testimony does have power to it while you share the gospel. And sometimes people can't hear your words because your actions are speaking so loudly. Are the actions of your life bolstering the message of the gospel or are they deafening it? You're trying to share Christ with somebody in your life right now. Everybody in this room probably is. Is your life shoring up that message or is it knocking it down? Paul concludes this section with a second purpose statement. And be dependent on no one. If the first purpose to walk decently, properly towards outsiders is more the spiritual application of this text, then this would be more certainly of the practical one. Why should Christians have the consistent testimony of being loving, peaceable, reserved, and hardworking so that they may not be in need of anything? An able-bodied Christian should not be financially dependent on anybody or anything, not consistently throughout their entire life. I'm not talking about a person who's physically unable to work due to a debilitating ailment or age. Uh, Obviously, there are uh, exceptions to this in wisdom. Rather, I'm referring to the able-bodied and capable Christian That man should be dependent on nobody. That's what the text says. So, I think what we all understand up to this point is how you live your life matters. Your actions have an impact on you yourself. Your actions have an impact on other believers inside the church. And your actions have an impact on people outside the church. Your actions, your life, makes up your testimony. Your actions make up your ministry. You have a ministry. You know that, right? You all have a ministry. The Lord has given you a ministry as a believer. And your actions make it up. In, in, in light of this section of scripture, some hard questions must be asked. Are you an abundantly loving person who is willing to selfishly, selflessly serve? Or are you the person who, who refuses to engage in a meaningful, sacrificial, loving relationship with his family, church, and friends? Are you a peaceable person who refuses to participate in a obtrusive behavior. I I will not do that. Or are you a divisive, gossiping, combative troublemaker who loves to stir up strife and conflict? Are you a reserved person who wisely thinks through how, when, and if you should engage a person? Or are you a person who foolishly and arrogantly injects himself into every person's situation like a slow drip poison being administered through an IV. 
Are you a hardworking person who's striving to produce a godly work ethic? Or are you a lazy sloth who invents ways to get out of a hard day's work? Ask somebody in your life. Don't just answer these questions yourself. Ask somebody in your life. And be humble while listening. And if you were honest in the moment, I think all of us can find negative, marred brush strokes from each one of these categories in our lives. Right here, right now, me included, all of us right now can find failures from these areas. For being transparent, I think we've all casted careless strokes. And we've caused some tainted areas that we're not really proud of, that we don't like to look at. Sometimes I feel like I'm uh, making a uh, jumbled macaroni art <laughs> piece of, I'm like, okay, here's my portrait. And I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> like that, that was a lot worse than I thought. Uh, this is not a call to perfection. This message, this sermon's not a call to perfection. It's a call to reform, repentance, and encouragement. Listen, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. This is rich. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you're a born-again believer, then when God looks down at the mess of a portrait that you've made, he sees Christ. He sees Christ. And he sees Christ's work in your life. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you're not born again, there's bad news. The only thing you have to stand on is your body of work. And if you take your body of work as the resume for your entrance exam to get into heaven, you're going to go to hell. If you take the life that you lived and said, I'm going to be willing to stand on my life, my legacy portrait, I'm going to be able and willing to stand on the works that I've done to try to live a good life, and I'm going to take that before the, the perfect and holy throne of grace, before the almighty, sinless, invisible God who stands in unapproachable light, you're going to go to hell. Everybody would. You can't stand before that holy God. Do you see? You can't. You don't have a resume of good works. You've failed and fallen short of the glory of God. You are a follower of Satan in this world. 
You've sinned. For our sake, God made him Jesus to be sin. He knew no sin. What does that mean that your disturbed piece of art was placed on him? He took the sins and the failures of his people and he said, I'm going to die the death that they deserve so that they don't have to get the punishment that they deserved. I'm going to take my beautiful, perfect, righteous body of work, my sinlessness, I'm going to take it off of myself and I'm going to offer it to you. I'm going to give it to you. There's an exchange that occurred. There's an exchange that occurs on the cross. This is the gospel. This is the good news. There's nothing better that you will ever hear in your entire life than this message of peace and forgiveness and grace and mercy and love where at the cross, Jesus Christ died the death that you deserved. He took your failures onto himself and he said, take my righteousness and take my peace. Repent of your sins. Place your faith and trust onto me. Trust me and you'll be forgiven. And every time I look down, I will see my masterpiece. And every time I look down, I will see the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's what I will see instead of your failures. That's what I want. Because that's the only thing I can stand on. Does that mean that we shouldn't strive to obey this section? No, of course not. Of course not. We know we're supposed to obey. And we're supposed to strive to read this paragraph that we're reading and say, my goodness, I must do better. Here, 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 there, there, there. Strive, do better. But you're not going to be able to work your way in to heaven by obeying by obeying these things perfectly. It's only through the gospel and the substitutionary sacrifice and death of Jesus Christ on the cross that you can get in. Only by the blood of Jesus alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And let us look to Jesus together while we strive toward Christ-likeness. Yes? Each day is another stroke of the brush toward the final portrait, which is your testimony. Each day matters. Your life matters, and your testimony matters. For Christ's sake alone. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you humbly grateful. Thankful for today, thankful, Lord, for your word, thankful for your gospel. Jesus, we love you. Thank you for saving us. 
Thank you for your word. And if there's anybody in this room that doesn't know you, I pray, Lord, that they would repent today. Repent, turn from their sin, and place their trust on you alone. We love you. Thank you for grace. Amen.